Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts, chapter 10. This is one I've been looking forward to teaching for some time. It gets into an important subject that causes significant tension between Christians and Jews and within Christianity and Messianic Judaism. It is Judaism. It is the issue of whether the Torah food laws are still binding. Yet on the other hand, today I'm going to show you that while Acts chapter 10 is used in mainstream Christianity to teach that the Levitical food laws have been abolished, in fact, that's a red herring. That is, this chapter actually has nothing to do with kosher eating whatsoever. And the reason for this misconstruing of the meaning of this chapter is that Christian commentators, almost all Gentile, usually don't have an inkling of what Judaism is about, nor what an important role Halakha continues to play in, 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 today, in the lives of Jews today and especially in the lives of Jews in the New Testament era, as it had for at least two centuries, probably considerably more, leading up to the birth of Christ. Now we've been discussing the term Halakha for several weeks, and I hope by now you all understand that what Halakha means and what Halakha is, it is the overall body of Jewish laws that controls every aspect of Jewish life and behavior. It consisted then, it continues to consist to this day of a fusion of three sources. The Torah of Moses, ancient Hebrew customs, and most importantly, it's dominated by rabbinic interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. Bible interpretations within the institutional church goes by the name of doctrines. But within Judaism, they are known as oral Torah or as traditions. Now, just as Christian doctrines form the subject and the apology for virtually every sermon given in a church each week, so does Halakha form the subject and apology for everything that is taught and practiced within the synagogue. And in the New Testament era, nearly every Jew, whether living in the Holy Land or out in the diaspora, except now for the Sadducees and the, and the priesthood, they were connected to the synagogue system in the same way that nearly every Christian in modern times is connected, whether it's loosely or firmly, to the church. Now I draw this church and, and, and synagogue parallel for the express purpose of creating a familiar mental image for you to give you a meaningful idea of how the Jews, believers or otherwise, practiced their faith and how they formed their their theology at the time of the apostles. Now while Acts chapter 9 
was mostly about the making of the new believer Shaul, Paul, about two-thirds of the way through that chapter, we saw a transition to Kepha, to Peter. Now, Acts chapter 10 remains with Peter. Now, when we last saw Peter, he was staying in the home of Shimon, a leather tanner, following two recorded miracles that he performed. Now, the first miracle involved a believer named Aeneas, who had been paralyzed for eight years, and thus he was a bedridden invalid. This was probably due to a stroke. The second involved a much-beloved female believer named Tavata, who had caught ill and died suddenly. I want to be clear that what we have in the book of Acts is Luke weaving together a history of the disciples of Christ following his resurrection. But the history is not exhaustive. It is not meant to record every act of every disciple, nor is it a daily journal of their lives. It is a reader's digest style summary. Uses certain highlights that, that Luke chose to present an early history of Christian origins that particularly pointed out the powerful workings of the Holy Spirit within the believing community. The point being that many more miracles would have occurred than the few that Luke speaks about. And Peter, no doubt, healed more people than what we find only in the book of Acts. So Luke, being a scholar and an accomplished writer and storyteller, and under the spiritual control of the Lord, has selected certain events for us to know about. And there's purpose behind them. Therefore, it should not go unnoticed that of the two miracles recorded in Acts chapter 9, one was a male, the other was a female. And as big a miracle as it was for the Lord to restore movement for that paralyzed man, I think we can all agree that it is, at least from the human standpoint, an even more startling miracle to bring a dead woman back to life. And in a culture and an era of male domination, God has made it a point in the Bible since the book of Genesis to show us that he values men and women equally, even if he assigns different roles to each one. Now it's also interesting that in both of these miracles, the action took place with the subjects lying in their beds. In fact, we noticed that the earlier prophets who brought the, bed, the dead back to life used a similar pattern whereby their subject was laid on their bed. And in both cases in Acts 9, the healer insisted that the room was emptied of bystanders. This was not to be a spectacular public display that puts all the focus on the human agent of healing. This was to be a quiet, private moment that rightfully gave the true heavenly healer all the glory. These two miracles took place in Yafo, also known as Joppa, and Peter was still there as Acts chapter 10 opens. So, let's read Acts chapter 10 together. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 and follow along with me, please. Acts chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1374. <clears throat> 
Acts chapter 10. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a Roman army officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. Now he was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household, and he gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon around three o'clock he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius! And Cornelius stared at the angel, terrified. What is it, sir? He he asked. Your prayers, replied the angel, and your acts of charity have gone up into God's presence so that he is called so he has you on his mind. Now send some of the men to Yafo to bring back a man named Shimon, also called Kepha. He's staying with Shimon, the leather tanner, who has a house by the sea. And as the angel spoke uh, that had spoken to him went away, Cornelius called two of his household slaves and one of his military aides who was a godly man. He explained everything to them and sent them to Yafo. Well, the next day about noon, while they were still on their way and approaching the city, Kepha went up onto the roof of the house to pray. He began to feel hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing the meal, he fell into a trance in which he saw heaven opened and something that looked like a large sheet being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures and wild birds, and a voice came to him, Get up, Kepha, slaughter and eat. Kepha said, no sir, absolutely not. I've never eaten food that was unclean or trafe. And the voice came to him a second time. Stop treating as unclean what God has made clean. Now this happened three times. Then the sheet was immediately taken back up into heaven. Now Kepha was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision he had seen. When the men Cornelius had sent, having inquired for Shimon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask if uh, the Shimon known as Kepha, as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter's mind was still on the vision, the spirit said, Three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, have no misgivings about going with them because I myself have sent them. So Kepha went down and he said to the men, You are looking for me. Here I am. What brings you here? They answered, Cornelius. He's a Roman army officer, an upright man, a God-fearer, a man highly regarded by the whole Jewish nation. He was told by a holy angel to have you come to his house and listen to what you have to say. So Kepha invited them to be his guests. Well, the next day he got up and went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Yafo. And he arrived at Caesarea the next day. Pardon me, the day after that. Cornelius was um, expecting them. He had already called together his relatives and close friends, and as Kepha entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell prostrate at his feet. But Kepha pulled him up to his feet and said, Stand up, I'm, I myself am just a man. As he talked with him, Peter went inside and found many people gathered. And he said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people, or to come and visit him, something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any questions. Now tell me then, why did you send for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago around this time, I was at Micha prayers in my house, when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood in front of me, and he said, God has heard your prayer and remembered your acts of charity. Now send to Yafo and ask for Shimon, also known as Kepha. He is staying in the house of Shimon, a leather tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, all of us are here in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has ordered you to say. 
Then Kepha addressed them. I now understand God does not play favorites, but who, that whoever fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him no matter what people He belongs to. Here is the message that He sent to the sons of Israel announcing Shalom through Yeshua the Messiah who is Lord of everything. You know what has been going on throughout Judah starting from the Galilee after the immersion that Yochanan John proclaimed. How God anointed Yeshua from Nazareth, from Nazareth with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and with power. How Yeshua went about, went about doing good and healing all the people oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. As for us, we are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean countryside and in Yerushalayim. They did away with him by hanging him on a stake. But God raised him up on the third day and let him be seen. Not by all the people, but by witnesses God had previously chosen, that is, by us, who ate and drank with him after he had risen again from the dead. Then he commanded us to proclaim and attest to the Jewish people that this man has been anointed by God to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets bear witness to him that everyone who puts his trust in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Kepha was still saying these things when the Holy Spirit fell on all who were hearing the message all the believers from the circumcision faction who had accompanied Kepha were amazed that the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh was also being poured out on the Goyim, on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God Peter's response was is anyone prepared to prohibit these people from being immersed in water? After all, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered that they be immersed in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Then they asked Kepha to stay on with them for a few days. Peter has been reacting to God's direction by traveling around the countryside of Judea and apparently by plan arrived in Lud. But unexpectedly, he had been called from Lud to Yafo. Now, equally unexpectedly, he's about to be called from Yafo to Caesarea Maritima, in earlier times known as Stratos Tower. Now, here we witness a sea change occur in the history of the Bible and in the history of redemption, as Gentiles are suddenly no longer only pictured as the antithesis and the opponents of the Hebrews, but suddenly Gentiles are the targets of God's mercy. He wants them fully included in His kingdom that will be ruled by a Jewish Messiah and King, Yeshua. Although in chapter 8, we saw the disciple Philip bring Christ to the Ethiopian Gentile, here we have a most unlikely candidate who has opened his heart to the God of Israel, Cornelius, who is a Roman army officer. Now what is so fascinating is that a Roman soldier was emblematic of the oppression that the Jews were suffering under. It was Roman soldiers that the Roman government counted on to bring the Roman ways to the many foreign nations that formed the Roman Empire. Thus every Roman controlled nation had garrisons of Roman soldiers stationed there, especially if there was resistance 
to Roman occupation as there was by the Jews. So, if you were a Jew hearing about what Peter did in going to Cornelius, you would have been even more astounded and angrier than when these same Jews learned of the believers' outreach to those filthy half-breed Samaritans. Now, can you imagine what the other Jews would think if a Jew in the Nazi death camps went to a Nazi guard showing him kindness, sharing with him that righteousness could be his and he could become part of the community of God if he trusted the God of the Jews. This is a reasonable analogy of what's happening here with Peter and Cornelius and why it was so controversial. Cornelius was a centurion. That means he was a commander of a hundred Centurions were the glue that held the Roman military together. Six of these units of a hundred men each formed what was called a cohort. Ten cohorts formed a legion of 6,000 fighting men. Luke, in fact, tells us of the specific cohort that Cornelius belonged to, the Italian regiment. A centurion usually receives ten times the pay of a common soldier. But even though, rather even more, centurions had a seniority system. So they weren't all of an equal rank, even though they all held the same title. When we see here that Cornelius had a couple of slaves, it meant he was probably one of the more senior centurions, and so he had a little more wealth. Well, it's logical that this military unit was stationed in Caesarea Maritima because it was the Roman center of government for ruling the province of Judea. And at this time, um, Caesarea was majority Gentile Roman, although it had a sizable Jewish population as well. Now Cornelius is given a glowing portrayal using four descriptive characteristics. First of all, it says he was devout. This means that he was faithful to God and he led his household in the same way. Second, he feared God. Now this is an expression that most scholars today have turned into the familiar label of God-fearer to indicate a Gentile who follows the God of Israel. However, there is no evidence that God-fearer was any kind of a formal or a technical term or, or title in that era or, or a named group that somebody belonged to. Rather, it was just an informal description. Third of all, he's described as a giver of alms. Charity. Cornelius was a generous giver. And charity was seen as one of the highest principles of godliness by Judaism. That it is specifically stated that his alms were given to Jewish people endeared Cornelius to the local Jews. And fourth, he is said to have prayed to God continually. That a person prays often was, especially in that era, an indication of great personal piety. Now, one of the things for us to notice here is that Cornelius was not hiding his devotion to the Jewish God. He was open. That's because he was not in any danger for his beliefs. Rome was quite tolerant of 
all the religions in the empire and Roman soldiers were permitted to adopt the local religion if they so chose. Naturally, the element of Caesar worship had to be retained. And of course, full loyalty to the Roman government was expected, but outside of that, Roman soldiers could worship any gods they chose, including the Jewish god. Now verse 3 says it was the ninth hour, meaning three in the afternoon, that Cornelius had this vision. Now this was the standard Jewish prayer hour because this was a standard time for afternoon sacrifices, the mincha sacrifices, um, at the temple in Jerusalem. And the vision was of an angel who spoke to him. And Cornelius, Cornelius is said to have stared at the angel and said, What is it, Lord? Well, now most Bibles will use the word Lord with a capital L here, which is reserved for a theophany. That is, an appearance of God. Thus, some claim that this is Yeshua speaking to Cornelius. I don't think that's correct, since this is being referred to as an angel. Thus, I don't believe that the term Lord is referring to God. Little l, Lord, used commonly, is just another way of saying Sir. It is a sign of respect. It's not an indication that it's God. That's what we have here. So the complete Jewish Bible has it right. It says, Sir. Now it's clear that his vision occurred while Cornelius was praying because the angel says that God's heard his prayers. And the statement that your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God is telling. Especially when we think back to Leviticus. There we hear of the smoke of the burnt offerings wafting up to the heavens as a sweet aroma to Yehovah. The thought behind what the angel told Cornelius is probably best expressed by a passage from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 13.15 it says this, Through Christ, therefore, let us offer God a sacrifice of praise continually, for this is the natural product of lips that acknowledge His name. So the concept is is that while this Gentile God-fearer, Cornelius, is not permitted to offer sacrifices of atonement at the temple altar, his prayers and his deeds of kindness have ascended up to the God of Israel, much like the smoke of the burnt offerings. Even more, it's a fulfillment of a profound statement that the great prophet Samuel had made thousand years earlier as regards the Lord's attitude about sacrifices. In 1 Samuel 15.22 we read this, Shmuel Samuel said Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice. Heeding orders better than the fat of rams. While it might not be entirely accurate to portray Samuel's statement as prophetic, we certainly see with Cornelius and in the angel's message to him a fulfillment of a principle that the only purpose for sacrifice... Now follow me. This is so important for us. The only purpose for sacrifice was to atone 
to a human failure, due to a human failure to be obedient to God in the first place. That's what it was for. Obedience then negates the need for a sacrifice. The essence at Qumran in their Dead Sea Scrolls community document said essentially the same thing. In 1 QS 9 verses 4 and 5, the offering of the lips in compliance with the law will be like the pleasant aroma of justice and the perfectness of behavior will be acceptable as a free will sacrifice. See, the essence, we're looking through the law and seeing the spirit of the law. They were forced to contemplate the sacrificial system deeply, at least in their eyes, because they considered the temple and the priesthood so corrupt and worthless, which indeed it was at this time, that they abandoned it. And so they believed something had to exist beyond the sheer mechanics of sacrificial ritual. Thus Cornelius' pious attitude of constant prayer, his action of generous charity to God's people was, in God's eyes, better than animal sacrifices, sacrifices he was prohibited from making because he was a Gentile. So what is happening is that before the Apostle Peter gets the divine message that barriers between Hebrews and Gentiles are falling, Cornelius is given the hint that a relationship with Jehovah that had been reserved only for Hebrews is now being offered to Gentiles. Peter would be the bearer of the good news to Cornelius of the conditions that had to be met in order for that relationship to happen. So in verse 5, the divine messenger to Cornelius told him to send some of his men to Yafo to fetch Peter, to fetch Kepha. He orders two of his slaves, one of his military soldiers, to go and ask Peter to come and then to safely escort him to Cornelius. Now, Peter now has a corresponding vision to Cornelius's, And it's very unsettling to Peter what he sees. And it has been unsettling to much of the church ever since this vision was written down and recorded for us. It was about noontime the next day when Peter goes up on the roof of Shimon the Tanner's house for his regular prayer time. Almost all houses in this era were built with flat roofs and they served as kind of another floor of the house. Now going up there gave Kepha some privacy. Now verse 10 is actually one of the most overlooked but key passages in this chapter. It says that while Peter was up there, what happened? He began to feel hungry. In fact, we're told he hoped to eat. And further, that downstairs a meal was being prepared. So where was Peter's mind when he went up to the roof to pray? It was on food. This is the natural context to the vision Peter's going to receive. 
So while he's up on the roof, hungry, fixated on food, he goes into what the Greek says is ecstasis. Ecstasis. It's where we get the English word ecstasy or ecstatic from. Most English Bibles translate the word here to trance. That is, Peter went into a trance. Webster's Dictionary says, a trance is a daze or a stupor or a hypnotic state. Now probably this is an acceptable meaning, provided we understand that this is a God-induced condition in which a person is transported beyond his, his normal physical state and his consciousness to a place that he can perceive things that are of another dimension. But it seems to him as though he is perceiving them in the real world using his normal senses of sight and hearing and touch, etc. So Peter sees heaven open. And descending from heaven is something like a rectangular piece of fabric, we are told, with four corners. Now it's important that we understand that what Peter says in his ecstatic state is greatly influenced by God. That is, Peter's words aren't all necessarily his own. God is intervening in both sides of this dialogue. Peter is in a spiritual trance. He's not having a dream. Well, Peter's ecstatic vision is symbolic. But as Peter says, it was also a great puzzlement to him. It wasn't at all straightforward in its meaning. The heavens opening up is a biblical expression. And it means to reveal God's glory from on high. That we are told that the cloth had four corners is also an important piece of information. In Hebrew thought, you see, the number four is indicative of the world and its four compass directions. So the four-cornered cloth represented something concerning the entire world and its inhabitants. Now, it's common in Hebrew roots and in Messianic Judaism to say that the four-corner cloth that came down was a talit, a prayer shawl, perhaps. But it would have been awfully easy to just say so if that was the case. Further, while today we tend to see prayer shawls as these external garments that are used for religious purposes and then they're put away, in Peter's day, a talit was worn as a sort of cloak between a man's underwear and his outer garment. That is, they were part of everyday dress. Now where I'm going is, it seems terribly unlikely that it was visually a talit as we know them today that Peter saw. Thus it's described as something like a large sheet or piece of cloth. Well, in this cloth were an assortment of four-legged animals, crawling creatures, and wild birds. All crawling creatures, almost all, not all, but almost all wild birds are not permissible for food. Some four-legged animals are permitted, others of them are not. Beyond that brief description, we know no more about what the animals were that were riding on that sheet. Peter is instructed to kill the animals and to eat them. Now let me pause for a second. Remind you, what's the context for Peter's vision? You 
hungry. He was yearning for food and in fact a meal was being prepared downstairs so he would have smelled the odor of that food being cooked as he's praying upstairs. Is it surprising then that this ecstatic vision involves eating? Hardly. But Peter recoiled from this instruction to kill and eat because he says that he's never eaten food that was of this kind. What was this kind? The passage says in Greek, get these thinking caps working now, well, we've got plenty of caffeine by this point. <laughs> the passage says in Greek that it was koinos and akathartos. Koinos and akathartos. Our complete Jewish Bible says it means unclean and trafe. Now, trafe is, 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 is Hebrew. It literally means torn in the sense of an animal that was torn to death by a wild beast. And such meat, even if it was of a type of animal that's normally permissible for food, is not to be eaten according to the law of Moses. If it's attacked and killed by a wild beast, you can't eat it. However, the complete Jewish Bible translation, unfortunately, is a poor one. Koinos means common. Akathartos means unclean. Common, now, follow me. Common means something that's not holy. Unclean means something that's not ritually pure. Common and unclean are entirely separate issues and they are treated differently by God's laws. However, in reality, what we see here is Peter making a response that likely is some kind of a combination of citing God's Torah law and citing tradition. But as we're going to also shortly see, this <laughs> where it really gets hard, there is a disconnect between the terms that Peter uses versus the kosher status of the animals offered as food. You see, to begin with, there is nothing in God's law against eating something in, uh, that's called common. In fact, the term common is not even used in reference to food. It's not used. Common is not a food classification. Mysterious. Yet, we find that word used here in the conversation. On the other hand, there is indeed a prohibition against eating something unclean. Now, in a few verses, next week actually, when we see what the conversation between Yehovah and Peter meant, if we understand both the Greek terms koinos and akathartos, and we understand halakha, this all becomes much clearer. So let me say it another way. The issue facing Peter is primarily about halakha. But since halakha consists of the actual Torah of God, plus traditions, plus customs, then we have to untangle something that to Peter's mind was supposed to be tangled. That is 
Peter and Judaism made and continue to make little practical differentiation between the Torah of Moses, traditions, and customs. They are all essentially seen as one and the same. And to help us grasp that, I'll just point out that Christianity generally sees holy scriptures and church doctrines as one and the same, even if Christians don't always consciously consider the effect of such an attitude. Now stay with me, this is really important. The Torah of Moses shows us that all objects, including people, are in God's eyes in one of three states. Holy, uh, holy, common, or unclean. Holy, common, or unclean. That's it. Holy means set apart for God. Common means things that are not set apart for God. But that doesn't in any way mean common things are evil or wrong. It just means that these common things aren't given the special status of holy. Unclean now speaks of things that would be otherwise acceptable to God, but for any number of reasons they are in a state of ritual impurity. And in this state of unclean, they can't be used for service to God. Thus, where the complete Jewish Bible will use the word unholy, instead where it should use the word common, that's not entirely wrong, but it is an incorrect translation of the Greek Greek word. And it creates the wrong impression. For a Gentile Christian especially, unholy... Think about what that word means to you. Unholy. It presents a mental picture of something being wicked or bad. Something that's opposed to God. Common does not mean wicked. So as we think of the term common in our day, it also doesn't mean unholy. Now in biblical terms, Gentiles are common. Hebrews are holy. See, Hebrews are imputed with a status of holy because, beginning with Abraham, the Lord set the Hebrews apart from all other people on this earth. Other people on this earth are who? Gentiles. He set apart the Hebrews for himself. Being set apart for service to God is the definition of holy. Gentiles having a status of common does not mean that Gentiles are bad. And it certainly does not mean that they also automatically have the status of unclean. Rather, Gentiles just aren't sanctified. Just aren't holy, not set apart for God. Of course, Christ provided a means for Gentiles to cross over that status barrier, and that is what Peter was soon to find out. But Peter's response to God's instruction to kill and eat is also somewhat mysterious, assuming Luke has chosen the proper words to record this event, and I assume he did, since this is God-inspired. That is, when it comes to describing whether edible items, food, 
our God-authorized food for Hebrews, that is their kosher, then the issue is whether that food is categorized as either permissible or prohibited. If it's prohibited, then it is simply not food. Ever. If it is permissible, well, it's food. However, there is no category called common as regards food, except in a kind of off-handed way and in one instance. And this reality is central to the meaning of our story. I don't want to complicate matters too much, but if I don't say something, I'm going to get some bad email. According to the Torah law, some of the meat and produce that's brought by Hebrews for sacrifice was to be set apart and given to the priests as payment for their services. This all depended on what kind of sacrifice it was. It depended on the occasion. This particular portion had to be eaten only by priests. And usually it even had to be eaten at the holy precinct, meaning the temple grounds. Thus this food portion for the priests was considered especially holy. Set apart. Now, if, for instance, the sacrifice was a lamb, and some of it went to the priests, then it was considered and called holy food. But if a lamb was not used for a sacrifice, and just a regular Hebrew killed it and cooked it and ate it for a meal, then it was not holy food because it hadn't been dedicated to God. It was perfectly kosher food, it just wasn't holy. However, because it was not holy, doesn't then make it common, except in the off-handed sense, that it wasn't made holy. Isn't that easy? So the important point is this. Common is not a food category. Common isn't a term applied to food. It is only that regular Hebrews could not ever eat holy food. Food set apart for priests. If they did, that was a grievous sin. Holy food was reserved exclusively for priests. And the only and the only holy food was food that had been offered for a sacrifice at the temple. You with me? So when Peter says he's never eaten common, koinos, food, it doesn't make any sense. Since common isn't a food word in the first place. And besides, all Hebrews, except for priests, only ever ate food that wasn't holy. So if common is just semantics, indicating food that had not, been a set, had not been set apart as holy for the priests, then it further is confusing. Even worse. Because the only food Peter could ever have eaten was common, not holy food. Yet Peter insists he's never eaten common food. What did Peter ever eat? Now, as for eating unclean food, 
Of course, no Hebrew would knowingly eat unclean food. But understand, unclean is not the term that defines the list of what edible items Hebrews cannot eat or can eat. This is the list of permissible foods and prohibited foods. For instance, a cow is permitted, but a horse is prohibited for food. But that's not the same thing as clean and unclean. Totally different. See, the biblical Torah food rules work like this. Food on the permitted list can be eaten, but it must be dealt with properly. It must be raised properly. If an animal, it has to be slaughtered and butchered properly. Its blood drained properly. It has to be handled and then stored properly. If the permitted food item, perfectly permitted food item, is not dealt with properly, now it can become defiled. So, it's unclean. So clean and unclean doesn't define which things are allowed for food. It only deals with the handling of permissible food. Handle food wrong, it becomes unclean. What has made this so difficult for Gentiles, and many Jews as well, by the way, to understand is, in the usual way of conversation and speaking, the terms unclean and prohibited have become all mixed up and interchangeable. And this gets very confusing. Now, I'm not going to go on with this because I don't want to get too bogged down, but it really matters greatly in our story. So for certain, when we look at the original, original he, uh, Greek, Peter says he has never eaten common or unclean food. Two different things. And because it was animals and not produce in the sheet, of the Lord's sheep, obviously Peter means he's never eaten common or unclean meat. Yet, that presents a problem since Peter isn't a priest. So the only meat he's ever eaten was common if you take it in the sense of meaning not holy. So what gives? Now, I sure hope you're focusing and paying attention because now it gets a bit more complicated. God responds to Peter's refusal to kill and eat what is in the sheet from Lord down from heaven by saying, Peter should not call common, koinos, that which God has made clean, kathartos. Our complete Jewish Bible has it wrong. It is just translated wrong when it says, stop treating as unclean what God has made clean. That's not what it says. That is, the complete Jewish Bible makes it sound that something was formerly unclean, but now God has cleansed it. Rather, that is not what the passage literally says, and it's not what the passage means. Rather, the Lord is literally telling Peter not to call common things unclean. Do not call common things unclean. And this is actually just a basic, a basic Torah principle. Common things are merely common. From the Torah perspective, common things in their natural state are clean. 
common things were not created unclean. Common things are not considered unclean by God and only become unclean if they are improperly used or ritually defiled. Once again, the term common does not apply to the issue of kosher animals, animals that are fit for food for God's people. So on the surface, man, we have a conundrum here. The words do not seem to be coherent. That's why translators changed it all around, trying to make sense out of it. The visual imagery and the conversation sure seems to be about food animals, but after Peter refuses to kill and eat, some of the terms used by God and Peter aren't terms that apply to kosher food. The term koinos, common in particular, does not apply. God told Peter not to call common things unclean for a second time. Now saying or doing something twice in the Bible means it has great significance. That this entire sequence was repeated three times, this just validates that it was divine. Are you confused about what just went on here? Don't worry, so was Peter. The verse says Peter was puzzling over the meaning of this vision he had when suddenly Cornelius' men show up. Now it's usually said about this verse that Peter was puzzled because he couldn't imagine why God would tell him to kill and eat unclean animals. I'm here to tell you that's not what puzzled Peter. His confusion was that while food at first seemed to be the topic, suddenly the terminology of the conversation switches midstream and the terms not used for food suddenly start to be used both by God and by Peter. Now recall, Peter was in a God-induced trance. So what came out of his mouth wasn't necessarily his own. Peter was essentially observing a conversation between himself and God. In a few more verses, Peter is finally going to understand what this bewildering, ecstatic vision was all about. That's what we're going to discuss next time.